Let's go ahead and uh, just commit this time of being in God's Word to the Lord. Father, that is exactly our desire right now, to commit this time unto You, to seek Your face through Your Word, to know You better. Lord, to let Your Word wash over us, affect us, sink deeply into our hearts and our minds, take up every pore in our body. And Lord, if that is the case, then we can't help but let it come out of us as we seek to apply Your truth. What You give us in Your Word needs to be lived out in our life, and that is our prayer this morning. That, Lord, we would follow Your truth as we gather and amongst ourselves and each other. But that, Lord, it will translate to our lived out lives uh, outside these walls. That people who come and contact us would, would know almost almost immediately that something is different in us because of your word and your spirit living inside of us. So, Lord, just help us to these ends right now. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if, if someone is not qualified... For a, a job, there can be disastrous results. For instance, if your car breaks down, you do not want to call me. <laughs> and, and I give you this as a quick a little, little FYI. We had a, uh, Owen and I were driving a couple, of few months back and we had a blowout. A tire went out on the freeway, got off and I'm looking underneath the the uh, <clears throat> the suburban, and I see the spare tire, and I see this thing. It looks like, well, if you unscrew that tire, you know, drops down. I'm under there, and I'm trying to unscrew this thing and unscrew it, and it will not. And I get the wrench, and I'm like banging on it. And this went on for like 20, 25 minutes, and nothing is changing. I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe I should look this up on YouTube, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure enough. You take the, the tire iron. There's a little hole. You stick it in there. Cheek, 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 cheek. Tire drops down, right? So if I can't even change the tire, you definitely don't want me working on other parts of your car. The same is true when we, we, we need qualified people to do certain things, uh, to perform certain functions. Uh, I was thinking uh, a time that my dad and I were down in Belize and we were fishing and we had gone out with our guide and, and we were in just a, a very small boat with a small motor and he takes us outside the reef and, and down a ways and we do our fishing and, and then next thing you know, man, it gets cloudy. It starts raining. The water gets choppy. His name was George. And he says, I, I think it's time. We need to, we need to go back. And, and as, and he couldn't, he couldn't motor the boat very quickly because now the waves have just come up. And it was one of those moments, few moments in my life where I was truly, truly scared. Just didn't know, you know, what's going to happen here. And, and I kept thinking, George, let's get back into the shore. Let's get back into the shore. And he said, we have to wait. We have to wait. Just be patient. Be patient. And as it turns out, there are two lights on the shore. And George knows when he lines up those two lights, it's an opening in the reef. And that's where he can take us through and get us safely into shore. And so we had to have patience there. And finally, yes, we did. We made it. But thankfully, we had a qualified guide to get us back to safety. Friends, as you have been learning, the same is true of elders. We have qualifications. And for those elders who are not truly qualified, you should expect nothing less than disastrous results for the church. Imagine a man leading the church who was often accused of various acts of ungodliness. Just accused. It doesn't seem like he and his wife have a very happy relationship. His children are completely out of control. He is someone who, who believes that his way is always the right way. 
He is somebody who is hot-tempered, a drunk, someone who likes to fight and argue, someone who loves to make money and flaunts his wealth, somebody who, who frankly just never invites people into his home. Righteousness is not a word you would use to characterize this man. He doesn't seem to exhibit much sense or, or even a sense of justness. His affections seem worldly. He often loses control and it seems like he doesn't know the word of God very well. I mean, you even wonder if this guy could share the gospel with someone, let alone stand there and refute false doctrine. This is why the qualifications for an elder are so vitally important. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. <clears throat> where I will remind you that so far in this study we have been in on biblical leadership. We first learned that the office of elders comprised of three terms from the New Testament. You probably know these, have these memorized by now. Episcopos or overseer, presbyteros or elder, and poimeno, which is pastor shepherd. We also learned about an elder's calling from 1 Timothy 3.1 followed by an elder's role, and then we got to an elder's qualifications. Looking at the first nine from verses six to seven, now we will wrap up Titus's qualifications for being an elder in verses eight to nine. We're going to have one more Sunday. I thought I was going to just kind of give you a brief deal about deacons and whatnot, but it turns out there's actually a whole slew of qualifications still left over in First Timothy. So we'll make sure we we get to those next week. Why don't we go ahead and stand together for the reading of God's word. This is from Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, reading verses 5 to 9. Paul says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion... For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict Hear the word of the Lord, friends. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, you might have noticed there, <clears throat> looking back to verse 7, in verse 7, all of those qualifications are in the negative. In other words, they are what an elder is not to do. Now we get to verses 8 and 9, which are all in the positive. What elders are to do. And this all goes back to the beginning of verse 7 in being above reproach. So, to be above reproach, God's steward must be hospitable. Be hospitable. This qualification is also found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. In the Greek word phylloxenos, I, I, I tell you some of these things because I find them to be important. I want you to learn these things. It's a compound word. It's made up of two words. Philos, you might know that, brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? And Xenos, meaning a stranger, which gives us then lover of strangers. It could also mean a friend of strangers, kindness to strangers. And this is a theme that we see over and over again in the New Testament. Now, remember the two greatest commands that Jesus gave us, of course, are to love God and love who? Others, others, and not just love those that are maybe kind of easy to love, but we are called to love even the unlovable, or might we use even a, a better uh, phrase, those that might be outside of your comfort zone to love. I mean, just look at what the scriptures say. Romans 12, for instance, speaks of the love that we are to have for others, saying in chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then in verse 13 of Romans 12, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. 
Now, this means literally to pursue hospitality, chase after hospitality. And it means as a giver of hospitality, not a taker or receiver. First Peter chapter four, verse nine says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. In other words, there should be no grumbling or complaining where hospitality is concerned. Acts 2 verse 46. This is following the day of Pentecost when Peter said, day by, or excuse me, Luke writes about the early church, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Did you get that from house to house? They were practicing hospitality with each other. So what do these just few passages I've read to you teach us about hospitality? Number one, it's a command. It's, it's not if you feel like it. You are commanded to be hospitable. And secondly, it's to be practiced by who? The elders? Well, yes, of course. But all believers with the elders leading the way. And furthermore, we are not just to kind of simply hang back and waiting, you know, for uh, the silver platter opportunities to show hospitality. But we are to pursue these opportunities without complaint. You say, well, yeah, that, that sounds like hospitality towards other believers, those passages that you read, Pastor. Well, how about Hebrews 13, too? Do not neglect to show hospitality to who? strangers for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it who are some in scripture that entertained angels without knowing it do you remember abraham and sarah and you go whoa whoa pastor now you've gone too far you want me to invite strangers into my house now granted The custom back in Bible times was quite different than it is now. Back then, people frequently would stay in strangers' homes while traveling, for instance. This is what what Jesus' disciples were to do while they were traipsing all over the countryside, sharing the gospel. In Job 31 and verse 32, Job is justifying his own righteous character when he says, quote, the alien or Foreigner has not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. Now, I I think opening up your home to strangers was probably more common, even in the United States, going back up till maybe the middle of the last century. And as time has gone on, people have become much more leery of opening their homes or their hearts to strangers. And some of this with very good reason. As unfortunately, there are many people out there that would like to take advantage of others who might show them hospitality. They might take advantage of them for their own personal gain, or they might actually be trying to cause hurt or harm to them. Now, what the Bible is not saying is the Bible is not saying that you should go out and just pick up hitchhikers or look for the next homeless person that you see and invite them into your house without knowing anything about them. The Bible is not saying to put you or your family into harm's way or at risk. We all, of course, have a right to protect ourselves and our families from harm and not to put them in some kind of compromising positions. So how should all of us and especially the leaders of a church show hospitality? Well, the most common and obvious way would be to Open up your home to others. Using your home for ministry is a tremendous tool for the shepherd, an elder, in shepherding the flock. It allows the elder to better reach out and care for folks. And frankly, this can have an indelible impact on people. I mean, think about it, right? Who who doesn't like to be invited over to someone's house uh, to be their guest for coffee Or maybe a a meal or dessert, even if it was to be an overnight stay for whatever reason, or or just to come over for a visit, some, some fellowship time. And thankfully, this is something that that I see happening quite a bit here at Calvary Bible Church, and beginning with your elders. 
where there are struggles with hospitality, oh, you start to hear a whole host of reasons, don't you? Actually, we should probably say excuses. Oh, our house, is, <laughs> it's just like a disaster zone. You know, we, we just can't have people over until it's cleaned up. Meaning, you're never going to have people over, right? Well, we're, we're just not social people and we're not, we're not, we're not great at entertaining or, or, well, we, we frankly, we can't have, uh, afford to have people over. Have you seen the price of groceries these days? Yeah, well, we're just shy. We're very private people and we just kind of like to keep to ourselves. Excuses. Excuses. In his book, Biblical eldership, Alexander Strzok points out that shepherding the flock, quote, cannot be done from a distance with a smile and a handshake on Sunday morning or through a superficial visit. Giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and one's home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity, end quote. <clears throat> there was a, just this tremendous man who is a, a pastor, a leader in the church. His name is R.C. Chapman. He was an English pastor. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, Charles Spurgeon has called R.C. Chapman the saintliest man I ever knew. In a biography titled Agape Leadership, authors Robert Peterson and Alexander Strzok write this. Before Chapman moved to Barnstaple, he decided that his home there would be a house of rest for Christian workers. Although he gave away most of his fortune before he left London, we can assume that he set aside funds to purchase a home for this purpose. His two requirements for a house and barn staple were that one, it be located in the poor district, and that two, it have several extra rooms for guests. As he furnished his house, Chapman made it known that any missionary, pastor, or other Christian worker would be welcome to stay at his home without charge for as long as he or she wished. Chapman was confident that God would provide the funds to maintain this ministry of faith. He also believed that God's faithful provision would be a valuable lesson in encouragement for those who stayed with him. End quote. In the same chapter of that book on hospitality, I agree with the authors when they say, quote, if spiritual leaders are not hospitable, then their congregations will be inhospitable and our churches will become Sunday morning religious institutions rather than the household of God. One result of Chapman's generous hospitality was that Bear Street Chapel became a generous, caring congregation congregation that touched its community as well as many others outside of it for christ end quote secondly an elder is to love what is good loving what is good this phrase is one word in the greek philagathos I mention this because it too is a compound word with that same prefix, philos, brotherly love, followed by agathos, which means benevolent. So you put the two together and it means loving and practicing what is good. One Greek lexicon describes it as one who willingly and with self-denial does good or is kind. Commentator William Hendrickson defines the word as ready to do what is beneficial to others. While another says, according to the interpretation of the early church, it relates to the unwearying activity of love. In other words, the emphasis is not just loving in one's heart or mind what is good, but it's putting that love of good into tangible practice. We see the opposite of loving what is good in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 3, where in the context of the last days, people will be, quote, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. It's that same Greek word, but in the negative, not loving good. An elder must 
love and practice what is good. Good by God's standard. Oh, and we have some great examples of this in Scripture, don't we? Uh, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 24, verses 18 to 19, when David is being chased by King Saul all around the countryside, King Saul, of course, wanted to kill him. David, at one point, had the opportunity to end Saul's life. He was right there next to him. He could have thrust his sword through him. Instead, he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and then kind of backs out of there and has this, at, at distance, a conversation with Saul, where Saul replies to David, saying this to David, you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Of course, it wouldn't change Saul's mind ultimately. And who can forget how David loved what is good when he took his best friend Jonathan's son, his crippled son Mephibosheth, into his house and cared for him. In Job chapter 4, verses 3 to 4, Job's friend Eliphaz admitted Job's love of doing good when he said, Behold, you have admonished many and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand and you have strengthened feeble knees. And of course, how about the greatest example of someone who loved and practiced what is good when the Apostle Peter declared in Acts 10, verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing what? Good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, say it with me, goodness. Guess what? That's the same Greek word. Which tells us what again? Oh, this isn't just for elders. It's for everybody. All of us. Loving and practicing good is not just for the church leadership, but for you, the church body, as well. And this isn't so hard in the context of doing this with each other. You know, again, inside the confines of the church, unless there is that brother or sister in our midst, in your midst, that oh, just kind of rubs you the wrong way. Then maybe this might be a little more difficult for you. But where, of course, it matters all the more is outside these walls. And I know that loving and doing what is good out there in a world that is growing increasingly hostile to Christians is difficult. But at the same time, if we are going to show them something different about what it means to be a Christian, then frankly, there could be no better way. I mean, if anything, we need to excel still more at loving and practicing what is good before an unbelieving world. All for the, the sake of the gospel, for, for the impact and advancement of the kingdom of Christ. I absolutely believe Strzok is right when he says a society that is led by lovers of good rather than haters of good is truly blessed. We can bless our society. We can bless our community. We can bless our neighbors. And yes, it all starts with us, your elders. Thirdly, we are called to be sensible. Sensible. The Greek word literally means sound understanding. And for some strange reason, the NASB translates the very same Greek word as prudent in the qualifications list of first timothy the definition is somewhat broad ranging from being sound minded to sensible to self-controlled it can mean to think before speaking or acting 
or to speak or act discreetly or appropriately. It can also mean to be self-disciplined in one's freedom, self-restrained in all our passions and desires. Paul will use this very same word in chapter 2 for how older men and older women are to behave. Now, how about we summarize it this way? To be sensible means to have sense. Common sense. Godly sense. Not only does an elder need to be sensible and prudent in making decisions for the church, but I think where it's especially necessary is in dealing with people and in dealing with people's situations and problems of life. The elder needs to have what we might call practical discretion in order to sensibly shepherd the flock. Passerby noticed a couple of city workers working along the city sidewalk and he was just kind of pausing and watching them. Man, they were working diligently at at this task that they were doing. And finally, uh, the man approached the workers and he said, I just got to tell you, I appreciate how hard you are both working, but I, I'm a little um, mystified as to what exactly you are doing. For it just looks like one man is digging a hole, and then the other man, once he finishes digging the hole, the other man fills the hole. And one of the city workers explained, oh, yeah, well, the third guy who plants the trees is off sick today. Not the city of Burbank. A city up in Idaho. Get those Idaho digs in wherever we can. Now, we love our brothers and sisters in the great white north. In other words, there's just a lack of sense. Sometimes common sense. Proverbs 15 verse 21 says, Folly is joy to him who lacks sense. But a man of understanding walks straight. The church does not need elders who lack sense, just the opposite. The church needs elders who will sensibly walk straight. Fourthly, an elder is called to be just, to be just. The word means righteous or just especially pertaining to laws or duties. It speaks to righteously conforming to the rules of society or God. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. 1 John 3, verse 7, way back at the Almost towards the very back of the Bible. This is the apostle. He is writing a general epistle to the churches that he ministered to. And throughout the letter, he contrasts the life of a true believer with that of a non-believer. And it's just a great book to understand some of the evidences or fruit of salvation. You can go to this book and say, am I truly saved? And John gives us all these kinds of things to look at to know if indeed you are saved or if you are not saved. Our text here presents such a case. Follow along as I read 1 John 3 and verse 7 in this area of righteousness that is acting justly. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Just now put my own parentheses in here to say, notice that our Our righteousness as Christ followers is equated with God's righteousness, okay? Continuing on, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Let's pause and just say this. Know that this is talking about the ongoing habitual practice of 
sin by an unbeliever, not sin that might be committed by a true believer. Look at verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So as a Christian, there will be a practicing of righteousness, a practice of acting justly. And what does this tell us yet again about who is to act justly? Is it just the elders? No, it's all of us, all of you, all believers. Turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Back up there before the Psalms. Job is an excellent example of a just man. In Job chapter 1 verse 1, it simply says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now we're going to jump ahead to almost the end of the book, but go to Job 29. Job 29 and verse 14. Job 29, verse 14. Here Job is recounting his past, and specifically when he acted as an elder at the gates of the city. He says this in chapter 29, verse 14. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. That's just signifying his authority. Verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. In other words, friends, he helped those in need or those who couldn't help themselves. Continuing on, and I investigated the case which I did not know. In other words, Job took up the cases of the poor. The alien, those who needed extra help and attention. Verse 17, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. So not only did Job seek to help the oppressed, but he sought to bring justice against the wicked oppressors. So for an elder to be just means that he is upright, he is honest, Fair, impartial in his decision making. He has a good understanding of right and wrong and the ability to choose that which meets the approval of the divine judge. Fifthly, an elder is to be devout. Be devout. The Greek word is similar to just. It means holy unpolluted with wickedness, right as conformed to God and his laws. It's often translated as holy, such as in reference to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, where it says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent and undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Elsewhere, it speaks of Pious, godly character and our duty towards God in conforming to his laws and statutes. For the elder, it it speaks of a holiness of life, faithfulness in doing what God has asked, a commitment to become more like Christ in, in daily life and conduct and being disciplined and actively pursuing godliness. It means that an elder is firmly, firmly committed to God and his word. And I think, friends, where this is especially important today is in relation to the shifting winds of culture and our ever-changing society and its rules. It's almost like we're living in the upside down. What was once right is now wrong, and what was so obviously wrong not too long ago is now right. And frankly, too many churches are trying to straddle this fence. 
and come up with some kind of middle of the road positions. This never works. And in the end, God's truth gets compromised and that can never happen. Not ever. We must devoutly hold fast to God's word, God's duties, God's plan for the church. We must not deviate even one single degree. And I say this without hesitation or reservation. Too many churches have caved into the demands of society, wokeness, ungodly ungodly ideologies and philosophies. Now, friends, now is not a time to equivocate. And let ourselves just kind of blow in the wind wherever, you know, the world wants to take us. Oh, but pastor, people are going to stop coming. Baloney. That is such hogwash. The people that God wants to have come will be here. Will we'll be seen as, as, you know, some kind of religious zealots. Crazies. Good. We'll be laughing stocks. We'll be mocked and persecuted. Bring it on. Bring it on. As for Calvary Bible Church, friends, we will remain devout to the Lord and to his word, bar none. It starts with the elders. Sixthly, sixthly, elders are to be controlled. We are to be self-controlled, self-controlled. The Greek word means to have power over or be the master of. In regard to an elder, it means to be disciplined, having one's passions, one's appetites, impulses, and desires in check. Having control over every facet of one's life, be that the use of time, or use of the tongue, or use of attitudes, or behaviors, or physical desires, even maintaining a healthy body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23. Like the verse I just read... Excuse me. This is part of this Christian liberties section of Paul in writing to the the church at Corinth. First Corinthians nine, verse 23 says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. What's the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, that we are sinners who need a savior. And thankfully, God has provided that savior in Christ. It's what we we celebrated with communion, the Eucharist, that, that Christ died on our behalf, that he hung there on the cross, shed his blood for us. His body was broke for us, but he was put into the ground, except for three days later, he resurrects from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering Satan, conquering hell. And he lives eternally, interceding for us with the Father, He leaves us his Holy Spirit to live and dwell in us for those that would now repent of their sins and put their faith in him. That is the gospel that Paul is talking about. He says in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self Control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. Referring to people who are literally like in an Olympic event. Like running a race. They got imperishable wreaths back then. That was the equivalent of our gold medal. Yeah. They do it to get this perishable wreath. But we run our race for what kind of wreath? An imperishable wreath. Therefore, verse 26, I run in such a way as not without aim. No, we don't kind of go, oh, yeah, I'll go over here for a little bit. Maybe I'll run. That might be a good. No, we have focus, aim. We have a goal to reach. He says, I box in such a way as not beating the air, right? No, you have a target. You're boxing directly. But I discipline my body. And make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
I've got to do exactly what I'm teaching, what I'm preaching, Paul says. Solomon says in Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In other words, if a man has no control, no self-control, the walls of his life are broken down. And now he's prone to enemy attack. And the enemy will attack. And frankly, at that point, the enemy will probably win. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Oh, wait a minute. That tells us what again about self-control? For the elders only? No. For all of us again. But for elders who lack self-control, they will exasperate those that they work alongside. They will exasperate those they lead. And frankly, they'll just be poor examples. Well, Paul's last and by far most crucial qualification. I had this as three, but I combined it into one. Hold fast the word, exhort and refute. This takes us back to verse nine. So you can jump back to. Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul says that the elder is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It's funny because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul takes all of that and just writes, he has to be able to teach. It's that, that simple. But here's the deal. When we look at the verses that come here in Titus, right after this, the next seven verses are all about dealing with false teachers. False teaching that comes from, quote, rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers who must be silenced. This is obviously something that was of great concern to Paul and something that he is already experienced and been dealing with in some of the other churches that he and the other compadres of his have, have, have established, his friends, the other apostles. If an elder is to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, he has to be first holding fast to the faithful word. The faithful word of God must be his rock solid foundation. He must be tethered to the word of God. He must be anchored to it. He must be wholeheartedly committed to it, devoted to it. It is that rock solid foundation he is securely attached to. He will not be able to accurately teach the word and refute contradictions and heresies if he is not first and foremost holding fast to it. And yes, God's word is faithful it is faithful it is altogether trustworthy true inerrant infallible it will never return void or empty it is all sufficient it is everything we need for life and godliness or as we like to say faith and the practicing of that faith and furthermore the elder is to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching what teaching are we talking about? Is Paul talking about? He's talking about the teaching that came from he and the other apostles. The teaching of Christ. The whole of Christian doctrine, including the gospel, up to that point in time, as delivered by the likes of Paul and Peter and John and Barnabas and Timothy and now Titus. Friends, elders need to be holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they can exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict exhort here it means well it's a word we've seen multiple times we talked about a lot even in thessalonians parakaleo which in this context it means to beseech strongly to call upon someone to do something. Elders are to be able to accurately and effectively communicate God's word and call people to action based on that word. Again, Paul summarizes it in 1 Timothy 3, 2, just saying he has to be able to teach. Strzok again writes, quote, the ability to teach entails three basic elements. A knowledge of scripture the readiness, or might we say willingness, to teach and the ability to communicate. 
This doesn't mean that an elder must be an eloquent orator, a dynamic lecturer, or a highly gifted teacher, of which there are few. But an elder must know the Bible, and he is to be able to instruct others from it, end quote. And the truth is, friends, there will be elders that have different gifts in this regard, there will be those that have gifts for pulpit ministry and and maybe can preach to hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people. And and there will be those that have gift to, gifts of open air preaching and evangelism. But then there will be those elders who will be even more effective in a in a Bible study or a small group or in a one on one kind of discipleship relationship. The fact is, though, Every elder needs to have a strong grasp of scripture and doctrine to be able to teach it. And then furthermore, he must also be able to refute those who contradict. To prove someone wrong and convince of error those who speak against, oppose, disobey, or revile God's word. We see an example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, where Paul says of those that are teaching heresies, quote, their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I shouldn't have to tell you where that one's at, right? Genesis chapter 3, beginning right there in verse 1. You might have a little heading there in your Bible, like mine, it says, the fall of man. Genesis 1, beginning, excuse me, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. She's doing pretty good so far, right? I mean, that, that's, that's, she's refuting those who contradict, and she's doing it with sound doctrine. Let's get to verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, Oh, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. Now, instead of continuing to refute those who contradict with sound doctrine, we get to verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Oh, shame on this woman. Oh, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Yes, Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus. Jesus gives us one of the best examples of refuting those who contradict with sound doctrine when he was tempted by the deceiver, Satan, out in the desert, but he held fast to the word of God. And what eventually happened in that situation? Satan gave up. Oh, he'll, he'll be back, no doubt. He just gave up for the time being. And where false teachers and their heresies arise, the elder must protect the flock by calling them out Refuting what they have said and teaching what is true. I'll let Strzok have the last word here on this. 
Like Israel, the Christian community is built on Holy Scripture. So those who oversee the community must be able to guide and protect it by instruction from the Scripture. End quote. What do we do with these qualifications today? It's, it's fairly similar to what we've talked about in previous weeks. By knowing what these qualifications are, I I pray that helps you to know more precisely how to pray for us, your elders. We need your prayers. We need to remain qualified. And, And yes, while many of these things are for you as well, for the elder, it is the whole gamut of qualifications to be all held together at the same time. No, not perfectly. We are sinners in need of a Savior as much as anybody else, in need of Christ's forgiveness and, and spiritual growth and maturity. But yes, these we need to be examples of these qualifications all the time. And so we need your prayers And of course, many of these qualifications are for you, the membership as well. And in that, I would encourage you to just use these qualifications to check your own heart and see where you are at with these and see which ones might be ones that you're struggling with, that you might need some some help with from the Lord or from God's word or from a, another more mature brother or sister in Christ. And I would say, especially with this last one of holding fast the faithful word, exhorting in sound doctrine, refuting those who contradict, maintaining a certain devoutness to God and his word and to the, uh, the role of the church. We recognize that there will be Many against us. Society will tell us that these things are not so, or those things are archaic, or those things are not meaningful, or those things are just flat out dumb, or those things are oppressive to the people. And so we need to pray for ourselves, we need to pray for the church, and you need to again Pray for us as we continue to be Christ's church, Calvary Bible Church, here in the midst of Burbank, Glendale, North Hollywood, Sun Valley, whatever the case may be, so that we can be faithful, so that we can be a light, so that we can be the salt of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are not ambiguous about your qualifications for us as leaders, us as elders. They are very clear, quite clear, and at times daunting, Lord. Help us as the elders of Calvary Bible Church to faithfully live these out. Lord, I pray that uh, the, the good people of Calvary Bible Church will be faithful to pray for us in this regard, that they will indeed take the qualifications, especially those that pertain to them specifically, and seek to live those out, Lord, in the context of this local church, but then beyond these walls as well, all for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we pray all of this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.